Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition for Friday, July 24th, 2020. As always, I am Kevin McDonald, the executive producer for New Mexico in Focus. want to give a shout out to start off, uh, introduce you to some of the team members because we don't often reference everybody involved in putting the show together each week. Our senior producer is Matt Krubbs. Our producer is Kathy Wimmer. We're also thrilled for the next several months to have Bryce Dix with us. He is a recent UNM graduate, and he's a fellow with us, courtesy of the New Mexico Local News Fund. He's going to be helping out, and he's been producing segments for us as well. On the production side, production managers Anthony Lostetter and the production techs are Robert McDermott, Aaron Senna, Benjamin Yaza, and Kevin Maestas. Appreciate all the work that they do every week to help us with the show and of course all of our correspondents and host Gene Grant. We want to start off with Gene this week and our line opinion panel. This week we're joined by Sophie Martin, a local attorney, also Diane Snyder, former state senator, and Julianne Grimm, the editor of the Santa Fe Reporter. And uh, they, it was the news of the week, the thing that had people talking First started with speculation, and then quickly we learned it was a reality. That's Operation Legend, as it's called. This is uh, a, an effort by President Trump and the Department of Justice to um, quash violent crime in cities. And uh, they part of Operation Legend is what we have seen play out in Portland with continuing Black Lives Matters protests and what a lot of people are calling an overreach by these federal agents um, in terms of arresting not only protesters, but also members of the media. And um, Chicago uh, also this week found out they were going to get federal agents sent their way, and it was made official, uh, I believe, on Wednesday that 35 federal officers will be headed to Albuquerque as well. Uh, of course, there was a lot of... Uh, Folks uh, speaking out against those troops coming to New Mexico, including U.S. Senator Martin Heinrich, the governor. And so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But the news, again, is late breaking and, and a lot of questions about what exactly these officers will be doing here and how this is going to work. So let's kick things off right now with Gene Grant and the line on that news. Nearly three dozen federal agents are headed to Albuquerque, the president announced on Wednesday. He says Democratic leaders haven't tackled the city's crime problem and claims he will. Of course, crime has been a problem under Republican leadership in New Mexico, too, as has unconstitutionally violent policing. Helping to look at the issue from different perspectives, our line opinion panel. We welcome former state senator and another line regular, Diane Snyder. Julianne Grimm, she's with us. She's editor of the Santa Fe Reporter. And rounding up what we used to call the line table is attorney and line regular Sophie Martin. Julianne, let me start with you. Does this feel like, in your mind, the president's sort of sticking a fuse in a powder keg here? Certainly, I think there's a lot of questions about what exactly the motivations behind this effort are, um, the timing with this effort. Uh, you have the... Uh, you know, United States Attorney General, who, of course, I'm sorry, the um, U.S. Attorney General here for the state of New Mexico, John Anderson, who is an appointee, you know, of the Trump administration, um, explaining that, oh, this has nothing to do with protesting. This has nothing to do with the 
federal um, agents that are on the ground in Portland. This is completely has to do with crime in Albuquerque. And I just think a lot of people are not buying that explanation. Um, so I think there's already a lot of doubt about what is um, likely to, to happen, you know, what's motivating this and then what will happen. You know, you'll remember that the last time federal agents made a big deal about coming into Albuquerque to do a sting, they said they were targeting the worst of the worst and they ended up arresting 100 people, mostly on low level drug crimes and their arrests disproportionately affected the African-American community in Albuquerque. And so I think all of that baggage is weighing into how people view um, this news. And so it's it's not great news for Albuquerque. Interesting points there. Senator Snyder, interestingly, how this all started, it appears we have a Democrat in our town, our Bernalillo County, Manny Gonzalez, <laughs> who went to Washington to meet with the president and Attorney General Barr. And, you know, we can judge him on whether that was appropriate or not, but Senator says he should resign, that he's looking for trouble. Where does the sheriff fit into all this in your mind's eye? I Well, first of all, he was invited and they the federal uh, agents have worked with mm-hmm. both the county and the city here in Albuquerque in the past. Um, uh, uh, sheriff Gonzalez has been very vocal about trying to fight crime and um, by the way, he was elected over, re-elected overwhelmingly at this last election. So I find it amusing that a senator of his party's now calling for his resignation. But I think the thing that's most important is we need to remember, just because we're not seeing it on the news, the virus has taken over, crime has not gone away. Mm-hmm. We're still number two in the country for violent crime. We have... Uh, we have... Uh, uh, like this, uh, the gentleman who was on to, uh, on with the president, his wife, Mr. V. Hill, his wife was killed sitting in her car. That was eight or nine months ago, and nothing's been happened about it. Now, and that's not to say that the city police, or the police are not working on it, but nothing has happened. If you look at the difference between Portland and if you would go and look at Kansas City, Kansas City is where Operation Legend is operating. Portland is not it. It is totally different. They wear their uniforms. They have identification that you know who they are. They're not the military. They're Homeland Security. They're DEA. They're uh, people like that that can help solve our crimes. And also, don't forget, just a few short months ago, the mayor called the governor and said, I need some help. I can't take care of everything, the crime in my city please send me some state police. And she did for a few months. So everybody, it's just, I can't help but believe that if this was uh, President Obama sending, offering to send in help, that we wouldn't have this kind of uh, reaction to it. Now, I'm a firm believer that if they start infringing on civil rights, that's something different. But they have not done that, nor have they been accused of that yet in Kansas City only in Portland. So it's it's a totally different program. And you know something? We need the help. We second in the nation on violent crime. That's not gone away. We just haven't been talking about it lately. There have been at least 20 something people already killed this year. And that's not even been covered in the news because the virus is so much more important at this time. So I think 
it could be a very good thing. It would free up our, while they're investigating crimes, it could free up our officers to do some other things and make sure, because they're, don't forget, they're being called upon to help with the enforcement of the of virus restrictions. So we don't, we don't have, even though the mayor has added some officers, we don't have enough people to take yeah. care of all of our problems. So yeah, I think it's- let me, let me kick something over to Stofi you just mentioned as well. Um, you know, A.G. Barr says this won't be Portland. It's going to be just, you know, classic policing. What are these folks exactly going to be doing? Senator just mentioned, you know, investigating and doing other policing type things. I can't quite see that. How does, how, did, did anybody know what these folks are going to be doing? It's actually somewhat ambiguous um, because we're getting different messages from different parts of the federal executive. So um, President Trump is talking about concerns regarding um, regarding protests and, and, and certain types of violence and, and AG Barr is talking about different issues. But I think that one of the things that's causing real concern is that what's what's been put forward by the federal government at this point is not exactly what happened in Kansas City, in that the Kansas City program was invited by the mayor. He reached, you know, there, there was a, he actually, I'm forgetting if it's he or she, but, but there was an agreement that was struck in advance of that program starting. And um, the Albuquerque mayor and the New Mexico governor have both said, we don't have that. This kind of got sprung on us um, and that it's it's actually normal for state and, and local and federal forces to work together. But they do that under a structured program in which it's, you know, it's it starts with the community saying this is something that we want and we need. And so we do have programs already, as both the mayor and the Albuquerque um, police chief have pointed out, we do have programs in Albuquerque already where they're working with, with federal agencies on issues involving crime, but this feels different. And I think part of it is there's this concern regarding Portland that there wasn't buy-in from the local community for what has happened. Um, and then, they're say, then the federal government is saying this is going to be more like Kansas City, but Kansas City had the buy-in. And so which, which one is it? It has flavors of both. And I think that creates very real concerns that, that more of Portland may happen because it, the, the program sounds like it's going to be imposed upon Albuquerque. Now, what's interesting always with President Trump is that there's ambiguity in what he says. He says, they should invite us in. And it makes it sound like the, that invitation still needs to happen. And in fact, Albuquerque Mayor Keller has said, um, has said, I believe it was he, has said, you know, we're, there's going to need to be an agreement. And if we don't have an agreement that we can work with, then this can't go forward. So, so I think that there's this kind of cart before the horse thing that gets us to this. Trump, President Trump is running for re-election. He is trying clearly to reposition himself back into his sort of law and order candidacy, that, that idea that he's a law and order choice for the president for the presidential election. Let, let me ask you a question on that After, point. Are we being used? Are we being used? That's here? what I was gonna get to. So you know, I mean, about who really, is being focused on, right? It's Chicago. Five electoral votes. Why not burn five electoral votes to make a bigger yes. 
And that's true in Albuquerque here in New Mexico. It's true in Illinois. President Trump can have no expectation he's going to win in Illinois or win in Chicago. These are safe communities for him to target because it, it signals to his electoral base in other parts of the country that he's taking action, that he's, you know, moving forcibly on these on these issues. Mm -hmm. But he's not I think he, he can reasonably expect that he's not really sacrificing votes in states and areas that were likely to vote for him and are now going to be alienated. Gotcha. Didn't mean to jump your point there. I should. No, no, no. I'm, I wanted that. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, Julianne, interestingly, our governor and RAG have formed, and uh, Senator mentioned this a second ago, uh, a civil rights monitoring group to watch these federal agents, uh, and not troops, federal agents, uh, saying if the feds really want to help, great, but if they're here to just antagonize, we're going to use uh, our level, our levers of you know, whatever we can. The Philadelphia, the Pennsylvania AG saying the same thing. A lot of AGs are rising up and saying, okay, we're going to watch you guys but you just can't step out of line. Is, is that a reasonable boundary? Well, look, the state has not done a great job of upholding people's civil rights and making sure that the police forces that are within sure. their jurisdiction have you know, behaved in, in a way that's above board. So I think that there's skepticism about that also. I think there's this political gut reaction like, oh, Donald Trump is going to send in federal, you know, officers. And so the Democratic governor better say that's bad. And the Democratic AG better say we're watching you. And I think this, you know, partisan tennis match is just boring. And it's not helpful. And it's not fighting crime. Um, I think that the point about the language and the ambiguity is something that I picked up on because everybody is using a different phrase. And it's all coded language that doesn't really mean what they intend it to mean. So just for an example of that, we have this idea of tackling gun violence, right? That's something that, you know, hey, for the Republican president to even um, use tackling and gun in the same sentence, like, are we talking about gun legislation at the federal level that the president would support? No, we're not talking about that. Um, then you have the sheriff uh, of Bernalillo County saying, well, they're coming here to solve homicides. Well, which is it? Are they tackling gun violence or are they solving homicides? Because in, in my experience, those are not the same actions. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a, a lot of question about that. And I, I think it's a, maybe a good point for me to interject that um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about Portland and about the um, violence that's happening between uh, police from the city of Portland and the people who live there and now this extra layer of the federal troops. And um, it's worth noting that the Santa Fe reporter is um, owned by the husband of the attorney general of the state of Oregon. Uh, that doesn't mean that I have any inside information or particular bias because of that relationship, but I just thought it was worth um, disclosing since we've been talking about it. I appreciate you I think there's one, one quick ahead, point Senator. that we're missing totally is the big difference in Portland is that protesters, not the, not the advocates, attacked a federal building and set it on fire. And they have probably blinded a young man that was working there. There were people in that building when they set the building on fire. So it is totally legitimate for a president to send in troops but, to but protect federal law, property. Local law enforcement handle that? I mean, I they haven't. Tragedy, they haven't. Okay. They haven't. They have stayed away. The city of, of Portland police have not even gone down to the site. 
But this idea that they're protecting the courthouse and that's all they're doing, that's a red herring. You don't have to be driving around in a rented minivan and scooping up people off the streets and arresting them when they're nowhere near the courthouse. I agree with that. But still, the reason they came was because of attacking federal property. And so whatever whatever they do while they're there is cool? I mean, the reason they came is also questionable. I did not say that. But there is a major difference between coming into New Mexico and into Kansas City, besides the agreement, than it is to Portland. We'll have to see how this all plays out. Very interesting. 35 federal agents coming to Albuquerque from various agencies to help solve our crime problem. We'll be back with this group to talk COVID in a little bit. Sticking on the Black Lives Matter movement here in New Mexico for a few minutes. You may remember back on May 31st, one of the first Black Lives Matter protests here in Albuquerque, uh, downtown. And by all accounts, it was a peaceful protest until late into the night when, again, according to reports, a group of other individuals not part of the protest came in and sort of invaded the same area. And um, what happened was that many businesses downtown along Central were damaged uh, and windows broken out and a lot of damage done to storefronts. And a lot of those buildings are still boarded up as the owners work with the city to get the windows replaced and, and be able to afford that. Well, there's been a really interesting development uh, and a creative development that's transforming downtown Albuquerque in many ways, and that's the Paint for Peace 505 initiative. Basically, it's a simple idea. It was to take those boards that are boarding up the windows and turn those into canvases. And so uh, host Gene Grant sat down with the founder of the Paint for Peace initiative, Victoria Van Dame, as well as one of the artists, Skelly Greer, talk about how this came about and what the message behind Paint for Peace it really is and how everyone's hoping that maybe this can lead to and build to something even more for especially downtown Albuquerque, but for, for the state. So here now is that conversation on Paint for Peace. First, a team of local artists and business owners in downtown Albuquerque have leveraged a unique opportunity to transform boarded up windows along Central Avenue downtown that were damaged when a group of folks disrupted a peaceful Black Lives Matter protest in late May, you might recall. And they're turning them into pieces of art. I recently sat down with the founder of Paint for Peace and some of the participating artists to talk about the initiative and how it has evolved and transformed downtown Albuquerque. You're going to love it. Victoria, tell us about how this all came about. What was the idea behind what's, what you're calling Paint for Peace? Uh, we were sitting around and I uh, had walked down to the lunch to, uh, over at Asian Noodle and um, there was some artists uh, painting one of the walls there on the um, Roslyn building. And I walked up to them and I said, hey, you know, how, how's it going? And they were like, oh, they were a little startled, you know, they were like, I said, this is great. And then they said that they would be able to, um, come over to my place and paint um, something on the front of the gallery because we had boarded up as well. And so I said, um, you know, I'd really like for you guys to paint something peaceful, you know, something uplifting, something to bring a good vibe to downtown. And um, so that's where it all started. The artist responded with overwhelming 
just fabulousness, you know, and it was just, and, and now I think we're really kind of moving like, yeah, we really do have something here, um, you know, to be able to revitalize downtown. And I think that we have the perfect opportunity too to become an epicenter of, of art artists and, and galleries. And yeah. that's how it all started. I just decided, well, just add some paint and Love let it. the artists go to, go to work, you know, and they did. And I, I walked down there last night and I was just amazed. It's just, it's really beautiful. All the messages, all the opinions, everybody just really came together for that one peaceful kind of message, you know, and it was really, it's, 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 it's very exciting for me to see every hundred percent of the people that you can see people driving by honking, um, you know, thumbs upping. Kelly, you know, interestingly, as we taped this last night, I went down Central slowly on my motorcycle just to kind of check some things out. And I saw you with some folks out there. First out, who, who did you bribe to get that awesome Brixens location? That's <laughs> like the most notable location, but man, it's turned out great. I love it. The night that I went down there, um, I was actually supposed to paint the Roslyn building. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. One of the gentlemen who's a manager at Brixens there uh, rode by on his bike and he said, you know what? He's like, I love you. I've loved your art for a while. He's like, just go paint on Brixens. Once people started seeing, you know, the other businesses really opening up to using the forefront of what they have up there. I think everyone else said, you know what? Really, we really want to do this too, because then it, is, it does draw the attention down here. Mm-hmm. So I kind of took that spot and said, you know, this is it. I need to go big or go home because, you know, this is a huge opportunity right here. And, I think what I show right here will really, you know, bring other people out and around and say, you know what, if he's doing something right here, we really want to come and, you know, participate as well and get something of ours seen down here and locations where everyone's going to be. Because not is it, it's not only, you know, just the people passing through or the people downtown, but like they have all the car clubs down there. So just the amount of different, you know, groups from Albuquerque who are always down there seeing, you know, downtown how it was and how it is now is right. is so huge, not only again for the city, but for the artists. So that's kind of where that came from. That's beautiful. I love the way you put that together. That's so organic, so Albuquerque. Somebody overhears something, tells the other guy, tells the manager, and next thing you know, you're on a ladder painting. I love oh, it. Yeah. Um, what, what did you want to say, Skelly? What did you want to say to the world, to Albuquerque, with your art? And you have this canvas, this brilliant canvas. What did you want to tell folks? Well, so when Jessica first presented the opportunity to me, uh, she said, um, hey, we have the chance to paint downtown. Would you be interested? And my style itself is a little different already because I'm, I make a lot of creatures. I make a lot of zombies. Love them. Um, a lot of like pop art style zombies and things like that and so the first thing I told her was you know well I have this style down here so and I bring that up to everyone because I want them to be aware that that's what I'm going to go for and she said that's okay as long as it can be a peaceful zombie so right before I went down there when I was talking to her about getting some paint Uh uh, she sent me the logo and I said you know and the logo itself was just you know a, a peace hand holding a paintbrush um, and that's that's one of the actual logos for this whole movement. Mm. And so I took the initial logo and I said, oh, I can zombify this and just run with it. Yeah. And, and I'm really happy I did because 
all my stuff is really bright and vibrant already. Um, It really shined down there. And so that's kind of more what I did with it. And I've, I've literally had people walk by and say, you know, um, that my logo itself still represents, you know, painting for peace because like even everyone with everything going on, how their zombies, you know, kind of just following everything they see on mainstream media for, for, you know, example, you know, that this represents, you know, like even zombies can break out of the box and, and be peaceful in, you know, a time of crisis or with everything else going on in the world today. Victoria, pick up on that. How much guidance did you guys give to the artists on the messaging or did you just leave it up to the artists completely? Yeah, we had, uh, well, part of it was, you know, we really wanted it to be the peaceful message and we really wanted that, you know, for them to, for, for like, like Skelly is a perfect example, you know, to really kind of represent, um, you know, your, your artistic values and how you portray yourself artistically. Mm-hmm. Um, but also portray the, 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 exactly that is in this time, you know, I think people need a little bit of hope. We need a little bit of happiness. We need a little bit of, of whatever. And that feeling has come through there. Everybody has that feeling. Yeah. Everybody, everybody I've talked to all the way down to the kids. So um, I just added paint and peace. When I think about it, I, I can't help but think about um, some footage from a fellow that you're quite fond of, our friend Lawrence. Yeah, Lawrence, yes. Uh-huh. And he, he went out the morning after the, pro- the aftermath of the protest and shot some shocking footage of the uh, damage. The follow-up video that he did that went to the same places he videoed previously that showed the artwork and all the beautifulness that was up there at the chemo, uh, at effects. I mean, all these storefronts that had gotten damaged looked so beautiful. The difference between them, I have to tip my hat to him. It was really quite an amazing thing. And so yeah, I, I yeah, that was a that was a really good video because we did go out the the morning after, and and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like it, it was. It looked like Armageddon. It was off. It was awful. There was glass everywhere, and. And, and, I, and, it, and I felt really bad mostly for, you know, the, I felt bad for the business owners, but I also felt bad initially I, with the protest when they first came down here, it was, it was peaceful yeah. and their message was getting across and, and it was, and it was beautiful. I get chills thinking about it because we were up on the roof and we had watched the, the crowd go by and it, I was just like, you know, really, how do we, how did, how do you take this energy and, the, and this this and how did it go from that to people banging on the windows and you know it was it was scary yeah. i can't thank you guys enough for spending a little time here i have to agree with skelly i and i know you do too victoria that this the, that actually this is a much bigger deal than we might realize in that it could grow into things unimaginable honestly because if you really think about what skelly was was pointing out that's the ultimate goal is to bring artists who don't necessarily have a gallery relationship type of situation for themselves. A great art town has to find a way to give those kind of people a, 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 a public showing. We have yes. to do that. We're almost like we're obligated to do it. Yes. It's going to be an art town, and you guys have really stepped forward to do this. I, I can't thank you enough personally for the messaging uh, for Albuquerque's vision for Black Lives Matter. I have to get that in too. There's, you know, for the folks that do come down, 
Uh, I want you to get a sense of that too, that, that the final word is not the damage on the aftermath of the protest. This is the final word, the artist's response. And I, and I, and I think it's just brilliant. COVID-19 continues to be the other big topic of discussion, especially for state leaders dealing with the response and how we try to stem the curb, the number of cases in New Mexico, um, which had flattened briefly, but uh, Wednesday had a record number of new cases and the governor actually came out. I'm sorry, it was Thursday, not Wednesday, but Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham held a press conference and announced that schools statewide now are being pushed back, at least in person. In-person schooling won't happen before the day after Labor Day weekend. Uh, Everything will be virtual up to then, and then the hope is we'll be in a situation where we can do the hybrid model, some in person, some virtual. Uh, She just felt that that's the way we needed to deal with things until cases get under control here in New Mexico again. Uh, Right now, we want to talk about, of course, there are very few people out there, I'm sure you're one of them, who have not been touched directly or indirectly by COVID-19. You probably know someone who's been diagnosed. Hopefully that person, it wasn't serious. They were able to recover. Of course, far too many New Mexico families have lost people to COVID-19 already. And this week we were lucky enough to sit down with a former guest of Caloris, our cultural affairs show here, an artist and a quilter, Gwen Trier Samuels, who was in the midst of building and making masks for the homeless population and vulnerable populations in the midst of COVID-19 when unfortunately she was diagnosed with COVID-19 and has a long has had a long road to recovery since. Luckily, she's doing better now. She was able to talk to us and share some of the stories about that experience, especially how hard it was early on when you need all that family love and support and those folks can't be near you. So this is a really interesting conversation by correspondent Megan Camrick talking to Gwen Samuels about her recovery experience. The fight over the state's COVID-19 response is not slowing down at all. Late last week, there was an injunction put in place by a federal judge that was going to allow restaurants to go back to offering in, in-room in dining, in-dining experiences at the restaurants, which was something that the governor had um, shut down again after the spread and the surge of cases in New Mexico had gone on an uptick again. Um, that injunction has been stayed, so restaurants can, can no longer do any in dining, they can still do outdoor dining, they can still do curbside and delivery, but uh, there's a lot more sort of pushback on the governor's authority in these public health orders. I know the state Supreme Court is going to hear arguments about that on August 4th, and we will be live streaming that with the state Supreme Court. So mark that on your calendar as we get some more um, clarity on that situation. But It's getting super complicated, of course, back to school. Also, the other big issue with COVID-19 mentioned earlier that in-person schooling in New Mexico has been pushed back to at least after Labor Day. Um, And we haven't talked a lot about colleges yet, um, but that's a whole issue financially as well for colleges. We'll be talking about this a lot more, too. But right now, let's head back to Gene Grant and the line for more on the COVID-19 response. 
It was late last week that the New Mexico Restaurant Association sued to stop Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham from restricting dining to takeout, delivery, or sitting socially distanced outside. On Monday, they won for a couple of hours. Then the Supreme Court quickly stayed the temporary restraining order of a Republican judge in Carlsbad, meaning indoor dining is still banned as COVID-19 cases pile up. New Mexico will likely be at 600 deaths from the coronavirus by the time you're watching this program. We're, of course, still discussing the balancing act between livelihood and saving lives. And Sophie, this was a sort of a skirmish, but there are a growing number of people, whether bar, restaurant owners or Republican representatives who insist the governor is overstepping her bounds here. How have the courts tangled with these issues? This type of issue has come up in a number of contexts. I mean, here in New Mexico, I'm sure our viewers remember the decision regarding church attendance right. and whether the governor had the ability to limit the number of people um, present within a church facility during a service. Um, and that that was something the church, churches definitely did not win. That was in the federal courts here in New Mexico. Um, what we what we see in um, much of the U.S. and what it seems we're seeing for the most part here in New Mexico is this idea that the, the executive has pretty expansive powers to um, to attack a pandemic like this to in this sort of situation. Now, obviously, you know, I'll speak for the Supreme Court. I don't know ultimately where, after all the briefing, where their decision will come down. But I do think that um, it's perhaps worth unpacking just a little bit what's happened so far, which is, first of all, the New Mexico Restaurant Association definitely picked a venue, which you're able to do as a plaintiff. They picked a venue that they clearly thought would be most sympathetic to their issue. They went to a, um, they were um, fortunate, I think, to get a judge who um, who agreed with them. But there really is a, there's a three-part test that goes into the granting of a, a temporary restraining order, which is what they sought. They sought the they asked the court to say that the um, that the rule couldn't go in effect into effect. Um, and they had three things they had to demonstrate. The first was that they were likely to win on the merits in the mm -hmm. case overall. And what they're trying to argue is that the that the governor was arbitrary and capricious. And that's not just fancy language, that's a term of art in, in uh, the legal world. Mm -hmm. And essentially means that her decisions, her actions were not tied to sort of to f a factual basis. Okay. Um, and certainly in the governor's uh, response at the Supreme Court level or their, their, I should say application at the Supreme Court level, their petition, the governor's office um, for the executive asserted facts to try to combat that idea. Um, so there is that question of, are you likely to win? Will the plaintiff be irreparably harmed? Will the restaurants be irreparably harmed? Um, that may be a little bit easier to demonstrate because not being open, not having revenues um, is, I think we can all agree, is probably harmful to the restaurants. The third part is, is it in the public interest mm -hmm. um, for, in this case, um, the governor's order to be stayed, to be held off. And so those are the three parts that um, that we would expect the Supreme Court to look at um, as the governor goes forward with her request, which at least the first part was granted, that her order be allowed to go forward and not be stayed within the state. I hope that that was clear and not too technical. It is kind of a complicated situation.
Yeah, it is complicated. It's hard to unpack, as, as you mentioned. And also, we should throw in the Supremes have a date with the governor in August, which I'm sure she's looking forward to to kind of get some clarity on this. You know, Senator Snyder, not to be flip here, but the idea of your money or your life really kind of comes into play for restaurant owners, probably more so than any other category than I've really seen here. It, it's a real struggle for them. Uh, a worry about their work slipping right through their fingers. Now that this has happened and the Supreme Court has ruled in, do they have any moves left to, to try to get themselves open? I think they, I, well, it's difficult, mm. but I think the court of public opinion is on their side in many, okay. many parts of the, of the state. Because uh, I have to tell you, I look at it and I go, uh, I've tried to be careful as possible, but I've gone to Walgreens, I've gone to Target, I've gone to uh, Costco, I've gone to the grocery stores and places, wore my mask, watch my six feet distancing. I've seen them all do it. I also, during the temporary little time we had, not this last two hours, but I went to a couple restaurants and had lunch. Uh -huh. Both places, six foot distance in the tables, everybody had masks on, you only took it off to eat your food and put it back on. I, I didn't feel any more uncomfortable there in that restaurant than I do at Costco. Mm -hmm. uh, fact is... Now, were you outdoors in the restaurant or indoors? In the no, restaurant? I was in... This was when we could do indoors, that very could, short period of time when we could do indoors. And yeah, yeah and for some of us, uh, I mean, when you're saying you can't, you have to sit outside and it's 104 degrees, uh, nobody wants to go and do that. I, I just felt like I, I couldn't... I don't see a great deal of difference. Mm -hmm. And I see those people losing their jobs and their business. And so many of our restaurants that are so adversely being impacted are small, locally owned restaurants. Mm -hmm. And I worry about that because that is part of our economy. So, so let, me, let me ask you another question real quick. I want to get to Julianne here in a second. Uh, I mentioned the Republican, I specifically used the word Republican when I mentioned the judge a second ago, uh, just as a fact point. But is the Republican Party doing what you'd like to see it doing right now in this situation? What's your sense of how the party is is approaching this restaurant problem? I, I would like to see them being a little more forceful, but a little more articulate okay. about the differences in in. in for example, set up somebody tell me what the difference is of me going into a restaurant and having lunch with people all around, you know, but uh, complying with the rules, and then going to Costco where I get run over by the guy behind me who's not minding his six foot spacing. Uh, I just, I have. I just really have some problems with that. And it's not a high paying industry to start with. Right. So I, yeah. I would like to see the Republicans be, you know, the pros and the cons. And I'd right. like the governor to tell us what is the difference in those two. And maybe I'm just being dense. I don't know. But I don't see a right. major difference. Not a, it's not dense at all. It's a reasonable question. It, it absolutely is. For, for some folks, they, that's a reasonable question. Hey, Julianne, on Facebook, we talked about what's at stake for schools, interestingly, especially higher ed. And that's that's worth watching for you folks at home. Uh, to tune in on that. But these are really tough times for schools that depend on tuition to keep their doors open, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I do 
to say one other thing before we can get into schools and just that um, Diane brought up the court of public opinion and how it in most parts of the state she feels like it will win. And I just want to bring up an example of a business in Santa Fe that participated in the let us serve protest um, and has now gone, you know, they got a, they got pillioried uh, in social media by people who are saying, well, if you're part of this protest, I'll never come to your store again. Um, and they subsequently said they thought that that perhaps the campaign was perhaps misguided and poorly articulated. And I think that's kind of part of the situation here with this high, you know, polarization mm -hmm. that you, you know, very difficult to like put your name down on a protest and then sort of nuance, tell people like, no, we're good with masks. We just want different rules. So I, I think that the court of public opinion was really um, pretty harsh on uh, people who participated in, in that. But, um, but you asked about schools, and so thanks for asking me about that. But the um, we do have a story in the reporter this week about how the um, closure rules are affecting public education and that the um, Institute for American Indian Arts has lowered its tuition, whereas the Santa Fe Community College has increased it. And so we're seeing responses uh, really vary across educational institutions. Mm, I could imagine. Senator, did you have a point there? I heard you weigh in just a, a, just a quick sec there. I, I just think the Court of Public Opinion, yeah. uh, Julianne is re talking about what was done in what she saw in Santa Fe you did not see the same thing in various parts of the state. It's the public opinion depends on how people are being impacted. And one of the biggest things that's keep rising its, its head every in every argument is the mm -hmm. fact that some areas who have very low numbers of COVID patients. So, and they're saying, why should we have to comply with the same rules that Albuquerque or Santa Fe has to do? Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that ultimately opinion, though, I think ultimately, though, this is going to come down to a, a discussion in the courts about the powers of the governor. Um, there have been several runs okay. at that question, the powers of the governor uh, in various states. And and I would not, in fact, expect um, that, that it would really hinge on public opinion because the individual, is it restaurants, is it churches, et cetera, um, those are sort of factual elements, but but the law, at the heart of the law is, is the governor within her, you know, able within her powers to put forward these types of policies. Right on. Hey, we're out of time, guys. Thanks you all for digging in on this and following the bouncing headlines with us. Lastly, this week, we want to turn to the environment and correspondent Laura Paskus. And before we get into her segment this week, I want to let you know, Laura, of course, is the producer and the correspondent for our monthly Our Land segments that cover environmental issues around the state. And we are thrilled to announce that we are shortly going to be launching a weekly newsletter with environmental news updates, resources, information about public hearings on important issues, a wealth of information that she's going to be putting out each and every week. And we want you to sign up to get that newsletter so you can be informed. To do that, head to NewMexicoInFocus.org, and you'll find a field there where you can fill out to subscribe to that newsletter. It's also on the NMPBS, New Mexico PBS website as well on the front page. You can click on a link there and get right to it. So encourage you to share the word about that. Get signed up today. It's going to be a great resource and uh, Laura does a terrific job with this, and she's always paying attention to these stories and these developments, and this will be a perfect way for you to stay informed because we just don't have time for it all the time on the show. 
All right, but to end the show this week, Laura wanted to catch up on a sort of unusual agreement between several states to help New Mexico and some of our irrigation water shortage that shortage that we're facing this year. Uh, states are tangled up in lawsuits all the time over these sorts of things, and New Mexico's finding ourselves a little short, but we've come up in agreement to help stem that tide, and this is really affecting the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District, which we have focused on several times in our land. And so we wanted to find out more about this agreement and if we're going to have to find ways to find more water to pay this back in the future, how that's going to work. And so here is Laura Paskus with that report. As we've been covering this year, these are hot, dry times for the Rio Grande. The Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District was even set to run out of water to deliver to farmers. But an agreement between New Mexico, Texas, and Colorado is allowing the release of 38,000 acre-feet of water from the El Vado Reservoir that's on the Chama River, a tributary of the Rio Grande. Correspondent Laura Pascas talks with officials about that agreement, what it means for farmers this year and next. So the question in everyone's mind, with the Supreme Court lawsuit between Colorado, New Mexico, and Texas, how did the other states agree to help out New Mexico farmers this year um, with this agreement about the water? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that from what I understand from them is they, they wanted to help out. They didn't want to harm the farmers, but they, it's also about endangered species as well. It's not just for the farmers. Um, you know, I, I don't think that they wanted to cause any economic harm for the farmers and they could see that it was a really emergency situation. But at the same time, I don't think they want to uh, create dire circumstances for the, the minnow or other endangered species either. So, um, you know, I think they wanted to cooperate and they didn't want to be seen as the bad guy. So I think that's a good sign. Right. So how did this agreement come together? Well, really, um, the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District initiated a request, an emergency request through the New Mexico Rio Grande Compact Commissioner, who is John, <clears throat> excuse me, John D'Antonio, uh, the state engineer. So that was about a Monday, a week and a half ago, and um, maybe it was two and a half weeks ago now. I'm, time's getting short. Um, so, so we forward, we New Mexico forwarded that request and and supported that request. So we were forwarded to the Colorado and Texas commissioners and engineer advisors for the compact, and they kind of mulled it over for a week and a half or more and. They had a few questions, but then ultimately they came back uh, with agreement. Can you just describe, I know it's really complicated, but can you describe briefly kind of um, where this water um, was um, in El Vado and, and who it was meant for and kind of what will happen with that water over the next mm -hmm. few weeks? Mm -hmm. Okay, so it was, um, native Rio Grande water that was retained in El Vado Reservoir by Reclamation and MRGCD. Um, and it, it's, it's meant to be held until we can deliver it to Elephant Butte without much uh, depletions incur occurring on the way. So um, it was meant to be, we were hoping we would be able to release it in November, December, January of this upcoming winter. Um, and release it in such a way that it gets down to Elephant Butte to help our delivery obligation. 
But what, what it'll be using it for now is we're, we're hoping it will last, we're hoping and planning that it'll last about 50 to 60 days or at least through Labor Day, we're hoping. Um, the state engineer has put some restrictions on it. It's meant to be minimal irrigation flow and it's meant to uh, protect minnow habitat. Um, and so it'll be released from Elvado at the call of, the, of New Mexico at uh, as, as small amounts as possible. And ideally it'll last through Labor Day and, and maybe we won't even have to release it all. And so this is water, like you mentioned, that was meant for Elephant Butte for downstream users, and it'll have to be repaid in a way. So looking ahead, we have hot year after hot year, we have low reservoirs. What is the plan for being able to put this water back in the system? Well, you're right, it, it won't make it to Elephant Butte this year. So it will mean most likely that our debit under the compact is a little bit more starting out next year. Um, and we'll have to, so, so again, we, we start the same thing over again next year, whatever our debit is, we have to retain that water in Elvato again, or in um, post-compact reservoirs until the, it's called for to be released. So it does mean a little bit, it needs less water next year for sure. So a little bit of a short-term fix, but I think everybody felt that it was important enough this year that, um, We'll hope for a good snowpack next year. Irrigation season usually runs until the end of October. How long will this water last for the district? Well, uh, we've made a commitment to uh, work uh, with this limited supply to try to get as far into the season as we possibly can. Um, but we, we've talked about um, ceasing irrigation for the general uh, irrigation uh, community, aside from the prior paramount lands of the Pueblos, um, sometime near the Labor Day weekend. So even if we have uh, a certain amount of the compact debit water that has been made available to New Mexico for New Mexico uses by the compact, if we have any of that remaining, and if there's, we've been fortunate enough to get some precipitation during the monsoon periods, um, we will still cease irrigation and hold that compact debit water for a future release time as called by Article uh, 8 of the Rio Grande Compact. What does Article 8 say? Uh, that the debit water held upstream can be called out by the downstream state at, at their choosing. Uh, typically it follows a compact meeting um, in the following year, but there's, uh, you know, it, it varies based on historical practices. The agreement was brokered to um, prevent catastrophic crop losses. And I'm curious what you would like people in the district and people throughout the district, um, throughout the region, what do we need to understand about our own personal responsibilities and what we should be doing um, with this precious resource? And what should people be planning for the next couple of months as well as looking ahead to thinking about what they might be doing next year? Well, um, in, in a, the environment that we have here, we're a, you know, a flood irrigation 
uh, operation for the most part. Uh, we do have some some folks that have uh, pressurized systems and gone to drip, but but that's not the kind of irrigation system that that has evolved here. Uh, but it really uh, is important for our irrigators to understand is that they, they must schedule and they must wait their turn. Uh, folks that are, are cutting in and, and not uh, working through the schedule really throws a monkey wrench into the system for us because it has uh, residual effects in scheduling other farmers. Uh, so it's highly important for everybody to adhere to our operational rules and to schedule water and, 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 and be patient and wait their turn because they will get uh, enough irrigations to get through the season under, under, under the conditions that we have right now. So that's the number one message. And then of course, we need to work closely together uh, going forward to look at creative opportunities to do partial year following and possible full year following and, 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 and create opportunities both in the environmental and in the farming uh, communities for uh, um, offering opportunities for folks to, to lease their, their irrigation opportunities so that we can allow for folks that have to make a crop, uh, have enough water to do that. And then also folks that uh, need uh, to help with some environmental conditions in the river uh, that we, we are committed to under the biological opinion. Uh, to, to work in that area as well. So it's, it's highly critical that we all work together going forward. All right, Mike Hammond, thank you so much and good luck. Thank you. All right, a couple housekeeping notes before we go. As always, we want to thank you for listening, for staying informed and engaged, and we want to engage with you more. Best ways to do that are through social media. I know everybody has their favorites. You can find us just about anywhere. No, we have not yet uh, started the NMIF TikTok account, but you can find us on Instagram, on YouTube, on Facebook, and on Twitter. So you can reach out to us any of those places. Let us know what you thought about any of the topics we talked about this week or any week. Give us ideas for topics that you want us to tackle in future weeks. also want to point you to a Facebook Live we did Today on Friday, July 24th, it was a fascinating conversation uh, that feeds into the back to the school, back to school concerns that we've been talking about with COVID-19. There was a New York Times article about a week ago that talked about and reflected on how back in other pandemics, especially early in the 20th century, uh, one of the solutions for the school challenge was outdoor schooling. And as we know, New Mexico's got some of the Greatest weather in the world, more days of sunshine than just about anywhere else. And so host Gene Grant wanted to explore the idea. There are several organizations, national organizations, that have done a ton of research on how even in non-COVID situations, there are massive advantages and educational gains to be had from engaging in our outdoor spaces. Uh, joining us there was also State Representative Angelica Rubio down from Las Cruces. She was behind the outdoor recreation fund bill that passed last year and is a big passion of hers to connect students and young people to our outdoor spaces in general. And so, again, not to say there aren't a huge amount of challenges with taking all of our classes outdoors, but it's an interesting idea and one that I'm sure educators will be considering and talking about as we desperately try to find ways to get kiddos back in school 
and avoid that learning loss that we know that happens even in a virtual learning environment. So go check that out. Let us know what you think about that as well. While you're there, leave us some ideas for future shows. We'd love to hear them. We'd love to get engaged with you guys and find out what more we can be doing on the show to serve you. And with that, we'll call it a week. We hope you have a terrific weekend. You stay safe. You stay healthy. Stay happy. And we will be back with you next Friday night.